Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest, mostly because I've, you know, we use the term borrow a lot in coaching, but I've just flat out stolen a lot of ideas, and I'm a big fan of what he's doing for the community, so I'm glad we could get him on our show. So today's guest has been a part of the Team USA program. He was with Team Canada. He's been a part of Pepperdine, LMU, and BYU in the NCAA. He's a big part of the Gold Medal Squared program, and he's got an awesome podcast that everyone who listens to this show should switch over if you haven't already and start listening to the Volleycast. Today's guest is Joe Trinzi. Joe, thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. So you've got a, a big name and a well-earned reputation about being like the stats guy and a high-level coach in our sport. But just for our listeners who aren't familiar, I did want to set the table right off the start here. You actually played at the post-secondary level. So people might think of you as a stats guy or a coach now, but you were a player. So I'm just curious if you could just talk about your playing career real quickly. That uh, In high school, I imagine you had some success and then played at the post-secondary level before you started coaching, right? Uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah, played played in high school, played played in my area, did you know, did okay for that. You know, I'm from Delaware, which is not like a hotbed of volleyball by any means, if anybody can even find it on a map. Uh, you know. So uh, and then yeah, I went on and played in college at a division three level. You, you know, not uh, you, you know, not uh, top of top, but yeah, pretty had a pretty good career as all American there. Got the privilege to get beat by Juniata all four years of my college career, so that was always fun. We were in a <laughs> The, the D three final four, three out of four years, and, and they won all four years. So of course that was uh, you know very enjoyable. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so I so I got a chance to to play a little bit, but uh, but certainly I had a chance to be involved in the coaching end with, with players that were far far beyond me. So I'm always just always just in amazement of of the very very best, and, and you kind of just see the difference between just every level. It's uh, sometimes small differences, but but and sometimes it's like. A gap that that's just ama- amazing how, how good some of these players can be. Nice. And do you feel like you started your coaching career while you were still playing, or did you finish up playing and then make the jump? Like, was there much overlap with what you were doing before, like player and coach, or did you find you had to transfer from one to the other? Uh, for sure, uh, I was arguably coach before I was playing. Uh, my my parents were uh, my parents were coaches, uh, kind of just the parents that coached every sport. You know, and my brother and sister and I older brother, older sister, you know, so I'm the youngest and, and, you know, kind of played all the sports coming up. Parents coached all the sports. And, uh, we lived in California when I was really young and my older sister played a club volleyball in California and moved to Delaware. You know, this is going on 30 years ago by now, 25 years ago. And, uh, there was, there's not really club volleyball in Delaware at that time. And my parents had never coached volleyball or played volleyball or anything like that. And they were like, well, uh, we know how to order uniforms and we'll watch our, we'll order a coaching video and, start our own volleyball club and you know those of us who are in volleyball you know three years later it becomes your life so that was kind of that was kind of them so i don't know i just 
grew up in the gym as the ball boy and then graduated to stat boy and, you know, whatever like that. And, uh, you know, my first coaching assignments, I was a, a sophomore in high school. And, uh, so my mom was coaching a team of, uh, you know, 15 and under. So like, you know, year freshman year nine, uh, whatever you guys call them up there. Uh, so I, and I was a sophomore, I had only really played been playing for a year, like on a team. I didn't, my first team that I played on when I was a freshman in high school year nine, you know? So, um, you know, up until then it was just, you know, peppering because there wasn't any teams for, for boys that, you know, prior, prior to high school. Uh, so I don't know, not been playing formally that long myself, but my mom was like, Hey, we got this girl on, you know, like every coach, Hey, we got this girl and she's really, really raw, but she's got a lot of potential and she just, I need you to come and just help her with her approach at practice because I can't stop practice for the whole team just to kind of have just go over this one girl's approach. So you know, sometimes to our practice, you just take her off the side and work with our approach, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's only like a, a year younger than me, but just a little less experienced even than I was. And that was, that was the start of my coaching journey, uh, of, of approach helper. And, uh, you know, just went off from that during high school, you know, I, I reffed like middle school games when I was in high school and, and helped coach younger kids with my parents and, and sister and all of that. So, and uh, even when I was in college, I was always coming back, helping out over winter break or, or spring break or whatever with my parents' club and all that, and doing working camps and all that during during the summer. So, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I was I was super into coaching from the time I started. And do you you know, were, it's easier to tell somebody easier to tell somebody what to do than actually have to do it yourself. You know? <laughs> definitely, definitely. And, and do you recall being pretty data driven in a sense that like you were taking stats or you were doing your own studies? Like, was it just a, a race to learn as much as possible, even when you were still starting out your coaching career? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, I mean, <laughs> my dad will tell you my, uh, you know, my, my older brother was, uh, really into fantasy football, really into fantasy football, like well, well before it was like super popular. So it's back in like the nineties. And, um, you know, it's, it's had this continuously running fantasy football keeper league, you know, for like 30 years now. And uh, when I was 12, they finally let me in. So my brother's, he's seven years older than me. So he's, he's, you know, his friends are all 19, 20, 21, you know, like they're a bunch of older guys. I was 12 and, and they finally let me in it. And my dad will say, I, I, sh- I, I borrowed his suit to show up to my first fantasy football draft in a suit. And I had a briefcase <laughs> full of all the analysis that I'd done all that. So, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know. I was a math nerd when I was little. So I was always into that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, on the volleyball end, uh, yeah, probably not actually though, weirdly, probably not until I became a head coach was uh, that I really, and you know, I was only, what, what 21 or 22, whatever, right out of college or still in college, or, you know, um, then I really uh, started adding all into that, you know, coming from just that background, uh, scholastically, you know, that, that's, that's what I was studying. I was always interested in, and I was, I mean, just uh, football analytics, baseball analytics, basketball analytics, um, I was always super into that. And I mean, it's just, you know, volleyball has always been behind those sports just because, there's not as much money. Um, even though volleyball is a sport that like lends itself really well to analysis, just, you know, football players and, and baseball players have been making millions of dollars for, for decades. So then of course there's a lot at stake in trying to find the best ones or figure out how to help them. So, so those sports have just been ahead of volleyball. So a lot of times I was always thinking like, Oh man, what can I, how, you know, like, Oh, this concept of like, you know, runs created in baseball. Like how can I translate that? Or like, what, you know, what's, you know, what's the 
the volleyball club out of this, of this uh, you know, statistic in football or, or the way, or even just like the way that football coaches break down their film. You know, they were, I mean, they were doing that in the sixties and seventies, even before that football coaches were, were watching film clipping out, you know, their equivalent of side out tapes, you know, and they literally had to clip out the, I mean, that's what they call it. They had to clip out the video, you know, talk to, you know, you read about football coaches doing that. And I was like, oh, I could do that. Volleyball. You know, so I, yeah, I've always been interested in that. It's amazing to hear you talk about clipping it out because uh, we recently had Jared Brown. He's a coach in Manitoba on the show, and he talked about uh, younger coaches won't realize how hard it was with a VCR sometimes and having to get two tapes going, and like they don't realize how how much like a MacBook has really changed the game. So even like clipping live film, I think is is challenging. But even the VCR days aren't that long ago, and it sounded super challenging. It just I kind of came on right as data volume was exploding, you know. I feel like in 2012, there was only like a, a dozen, a dozen or a bit more than that people who like really knew how to do data volley well in the United States. And now it's like everybody knows how to do data volley. And now data volley has been falling out of favor because you just have volley metrics and it does, does automatic. And, and I mean, in 10 years, you know, there will just be, you know, AI programs and the camera that, that create everything for you, you know, and everything like that. And yeah, just a, it's an accelerated thing. So I, I, I don't know. I just like really feel like I came on at like the perfect time. Uh, when I got introduced to like really high level volleyball. So I'm like super fortunate enough to like just really kind of hit the jackpot. Nice. And, and I first learned your name through the Coach Your Brains podcast, which is a great one. Anyone not listening to that should definitely check it out. But I thought the one funny story, and I apologize to anyone who's heard that one, to, just to double up, but you're so passionate about the stats and just how confident you are in things. Is it true you called out uh, the late, great Carl McGowan on a study and basically told him that his middle-middle defense wasn't wasn't factual, and then he told you to do your own damn study, for lack of a better phrase? And, and is that kind of just the confidence you had in your skills that you're reaching out to some of these all-time great coaches and, and just – having the, the courage to ask them questions or call them out on some of their stuff? Uh, confidence and courage is, is a polite way to put it. I'd call it being a 21-year-old jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that, that, that'll go through the, go through on the pod. But no, I mean, that's, I mean, it's just really like, hey, you can consider yourself, you know, a data-driven person or, or all of that. And we still have all these, these biases and assumptions. So I don't know. I just read something that Carl wrote and whatever, coaching volleyball or whatever, article and I just it didn't match the way that was my intuition or that I had been trained etc cetera, etc cetera. I mean I had no facts or anything behind it I just thought he was wrong you know and off the cuff thought that and then he was like check yourself basically and then I was like crap you know <laughs> like he was totally right I just I've been going like even though I consider myself like you know we all have these blind spots so it's just um I was like wow like I never even like thought to examine that piece of the game and then I just through, through, through getting to know Carl, I mean, that was just like, it was so interesting. Like the, really the first time I really got to communicate with Carl, you know, I had a gold medal score clinic, you know, and I attended and, you know, he, he was a clinician and through his presentations and also like through the questions that I asked him, it was like so many of these things. It was like, I've been like struggling to like figure out and learn and, and, and work through and, and, cause I just, you know, I grew up in, in Delaware, played, played division three volleyball and just like, I'd never met anybody like thinking about the game in the ways that I had. And then I met Carl and I was like, Oh, this guy's been thinking about the game in that way for 40 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like all of these concepts that I was like struggling to grasp and figure out on my own. And then he was like, Oh yeah, I already figured it out. And the answer is this. And I was like, Oh, awesome. <laughs> 
Awesome. Awesome. And then again, looking at your bio and how you got into the USA program, the, the rumor online is that you volunteered. And when we had Tom Black on the show, he mentioned that's how he got his foot in the door. And he was honestly just willing to like shag balls and just wanted to be around and maybe learn a few drills and talk to people. Uh, I'm curious when you reached out to the program, was it to take on like a technical role or a data role? Or honestly, were you just trying to get in the gym and surround yourself with the highest level you could get exposed to? Don't mind like a three minute sidetrack. Um, it's just completely accidental. I'm just, I'm just like the Forrest Gump of volleyball. You know, I'm just like this, this guy from Delaware who just kind of roams around, but somehow stumbles into all these incredible uh, opportunities. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I met Carl when I was just uh, 21, maybe 22 by then coach, just coaching club volleyball in Delaware, helping my parents run a club. And I was like really perfectly happy doing that. And, um, you know, I graduated uh, college in 2009. And, and, you know, applied statistics is what I was, what I was studying and, uh, at a school right by New York city. And my plan was to essentially work on wall street. I mean, that's kind of always how I thought, you know, I loved volleyball and loved coaching volleyball, but I always just thought that that's what I would do. It's kind of what I was going for college for kind of quantitative analysis, financial engineering, all that kind of stuff. But okay. So keep in mind, I'm graduating in college in 2009. So like, even while I'm in school, I'm just like looking at this wall street world. And as I like, <laughs> come closer and closer to potentially like taking jobs and, and doing interviews. I'm just like, this is like not the world that I want to live in. And then like, Hey, and then, then like the economy is like, you know, and from all the stuff that's like kind of crashing around me and I'm, I'm doing my, you know, grad work because in that field, you know, like that, you know, usually working towards PhD and I'm doing that. But like, while I'm doing that, I'm two, three days a week, I'm driving two hours back to Delaware to coach club practice or whatever like that. I'm just like 10 times more fired up to write my practice than I am to, you know, do whatever, you know, the next analysis or, you know, for like my quote unquote career. And, uh, this sounds like, so it's like the most, feels like the most dated reference now. It's going to sound like so cliche, <laughs> but like that, I, I had read four hour work week, my Tim Ferriss at, at around that time. And, uh, just, uh, so much about that book is, is just so like dated because e-commerce, you know, just, it seems like dinosaurs right now, like thinking about Google search words and all that, but like the core concept of that book, he, he, you know, he actually references the, uh, the Charlie Sheen character from the movie Wall Street, and it's like, uh, you know, what are you going to do when you make your million dollars or whatever like that? You know, quit my job and ride a motorcycle through China for a year. And it's like you don't need a million dollars to do that. You know, it, it's actually way cheap. It's actually surprisingly cheap if you have the free time to, you know, do that. And it's like, I didn't care about going to China or anything, but I was like, I should look really sat down and thought, I was like, okay, well, going to a Wall Street job or whatever like that. And my, my ideas are, okay, I'm going to make a lot of money or, you know, whatever you think when you're 2021, 20, 22 in that kind of track. And it's like, hey, well, what would I do if I already had like millions of dollars? I would just want to coach volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat down, I was like, okay, how much money like do I actually need to make a month? So not very much when you're 22 years old. And I was like, okay, I mean, whatever, future Chipotle burritos a week and, you know, a little bit like that. It's really not that hard. Uh, so I just uh, actually dropped out of my grad program and just, well, like, yeah, I mean, and and uh, just learned, I'm just going to coach volleyball. And then I just, uh, you know, that was right around the time when I met Carl too. And I was just like, I need to know everything this guy knows. And just like, it was just, uh, I was, just, was like so amazed by it. So I just was like the super annoying guy at like these coaching clinics. I just like went to every coaching clinic that he was going to be at and just pestered him with questions, pestered him with emails. And he was like, so amazing with his time. So gracious. And then like, eventually I think he just got like 
sick of me and started like pawning me off on other people. So he's just like, uh, go email Jim McLaughlin about that question or go, go to, you know, all these other things. And so then I would kind of go to Carl and I said, Hey, who do I need to learn from? And he would kind of say these things almost as like, uh, challenges. Uh, I feel like, you know, just kind of testing where I was at. He's like, Oh, well, you need to go out and, and learn from Jim McLaughlin at University of Washington. So it's like, okay, save with money, you know, got the, got the, airfare and found some students on the Craigslist at that time when people still use Craigslist, you know, Oh, Hey, we'll rent you our couch for the week for 40 bucks or whatever like that. So just went there, like took a Greyhound bus to, to LA to watch Pepperdine practice and same thing. Like just found a couch. And ran. I was, that's what I was just doing. I was just like kind of going around the country, just trying to learn from all these people. And it's like, the thing is like for a lot of these coaches, like they might have to pay like a few, if you go to like a coaching clinic for a weekend, I can cost you like 800 bucks, you know, like three, three, $400 for a coaching clinic. And then you got a hotel nights and then, you know, you're, you're eating dinner out or whatever like that gas money or travel or like, like costs you a lot of money. And, uh, most of all these coaches, you just show up at the gym. It's free. You know, they're not charging <laughs> you to watch the practice. And I mean, like most volleyball coaches at plenty of times in the year, no problem. People watching their practice for free, you know, and, and that's just what I, you know, what I was doing and, or go work their camp. You know, not only is it free, they pay you to work their camp. <laughs> so that's what I would do. And, uh, that's how I was learning from all these people and just taking that approach. And, and, um, and I was just pastor Carl and he was like, this was, uh, going into like spring, like spring of 2012. And he was like, well, you know, Cuba Cutchin is the head coach of, of the USA women's Olympic team. He's, you know, he's a former player of mine he's a great coach and he's doing great things in that program. And I just like sat down. I was like, okay, I'm coaching club, you know, so we have our first qualifier, you know, whatever it is, March or, you know, whatever it is like that first chance to qualify for here to Olympic nationals. And then, you know, nationals like beginning of July, you know, whatever it is like that. Um, so I was like, okay, of all that time, how much money would I like really need to just go out there for like three months and just watch practice? And that's all I kind of, and, and turns out not, not that much, actually. Like, again, like found on Craigslist, what I thought was a bedroom to rent turned out it was just somebody like roped off a section of their uh, living room with an air mattress. But I didn't know that. I was wondering how, you know, oh, three months in Southern California for a thousand bucks should have, uh, it was a little naive there, but <laughs> hey, whatever, you're a 23, 24 year old guy. Yeah. You want to take some risks uh, that, have, you know, now with the family, I might not be, but, uh, that's all I did. I just, I found a place within, I don't know, it was like two and a half, three miles for the gym. So I could walk every day and, uh, you know, didn't need that much money to live out there. And I was just like, I'm just going to treat this like, Hey, I got a thousand dollar budget and can I connect with some people in the club community and do some lessons or help work some camps in the evening or something like that. Make, make a few extra, you know, make a little money while I'm out there. I'm like, I'm just going to treat this like it's like the best coaching clinic ever. Like I wasn't, I didn't even know that, that would be a thing that I could volunteer or work at with the national team. Right. I'm just like, again, I'm just like this dude from Delaware. Like I just, I was only thinking about just watching practice, treating it like a coaching clinic for myself. I'm like, I'm just going to study what they do for a couple months and practice. And then I'll come back to my club team right before nationals. And, and then it'll be great. And, uh, you know, and then when I, um, when I went out there, first of all, I didn't even realize the national team practice was free to, it was open to the public, uh, at least at that time. And, and all the time I was on with the national team, it's open to the public. We're practicing in a public facility. You know, like we're playing that, we're having national team practice 
there's like kids gymnastics, you know, five courts down. <laughs> but uh, so I, I didn't even, I, I thought I was getting like some special opportunity to watch practice. <laughs> so I emailed Hugh and, and said, Oh, you know, thank you so much, which, you know, I'm sure he just forwarded on to, to Jamie. who was Morrison was the youngest uh, guy on the staff at that, at that time. And I was just like, wow, I'm so thankful to be able to watch practice. Just, Hey, say the word. You won't even never know I'm there. I'm just, I'll just be off to the sideline. Just, just watching take notes. Like you won't even know I'm there, but I really appreciate the opportunity. Hey, do you need somebody to shag some balls or, or you know, wipe down the floor or, or help set the nets up or anything like that? Just, um, and, uh, you know, I think after like a few days of making sure I wasn't a weirdo or anything like that, Jamie was like, you know, hey, yeah, I, again, kind of one of these things that I feel like has been thrown out to me a lot of times. He's like, hey, yeah, you know, I, you know, I get in here at 630 to help set up the nets or, you know, whatever it was. And then, hey, he got there, you know, you got there at 630 and I was already there. Hey, yeah, come on, I'll help you set up the nets. And, and again, I, I wasn't, I wasn't helping him set up the nets like, or, or, you know, shag balls or anything like that, because I thought I was going to be on the staff just by shagging balls. Then I was pretty close to where Garch and Hugh and, and Jamie and Paula and all the players were like, that's a better place to watch practice while you're putting balls in the ball cart. You're right there on practice. I can hear everything that they're saying and I can watch and I can see all the interactions. I can just see what they're doing. So it was like, and then, you know, that, that turns into like, hey, hey, uh, hey, Joe, you know, can you uh, rate our guns and servers while they're serving and write down some speed? And, you know, and then I was just like, hey, you know, Jamie, do you, do you need me to put that in a spreadsheet or whatever like that? Okay, so I'm going to put it in a spreadsheet, then I get to be in the office. And uh, again, uh, again, not with thinking that I was going to have any role on this staff, but it was just like, okay, well, if I come up to the office to put the numbers in the spreadsheet, then I can be sitting in the office and then 10 feet away from me, like Karch and Hugh are talking about passing. Or like Paul's over there doing video with the player talking about blocking. So um, I really just started doing it to eat, be able to eavesdrop, you know, and then they have these staff meetings and I was like, Hey, Paul, you need me to take notes or anything like that. And then, you know, I just been there for a few months and just a couple months, just kind of been around and just kind of been this obtrusive, like, I guess I just like mastered the art of being a fly on the wall. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's June and they're leading up to the Olympics and I'm, I'm in these staff meetings to take, to taking notes, taking the minutes of the meeting to, you know, record them for, for the coaches and all that. And they're like making like critical decisions about who's going to the Olympics and all that. And I'm just like sitting there like, Oh my God, like three, three months ago, I was just this guy from Delaware, you know, nobody even knew. And, uh, but it's just, I mean, it was really just flat on the wall, but after, you know, that that's when I really learned data volley. I never heard of data volley before I went out there volunteering. I was just seeing how they were watching video because I had only done with my club team, you know, I recorded my, games and then i would watch them and you know just look at the timestamps. you know 12 minutes 10 seconds Susie, nice approach you know 14 minutes 50 seconds jenny you're out of position you know one step left or, you know whatever i just that's all i had ever done and i'm like watching them do the video i'm like what do you, you know what what are you doing over there oh it's data volley it's this program that you, you tag all the timestamps and uh you, you know it does all this and it has all these tools and i'm just like yes i could learn that <laughs> So, uh, you know, Jamie just gave me like a two minute crash course on how to do it, installed it on my computer. That was back in the day. <laughs> they always since wised up with the D4 and all that. Uh, it was back in the day when like you started, if you loaded up data volley with the key and then took the key out, it would, it, the program would stay running until like your computer turned off or whatever like that. So all I needed Jamie to do was like boot it up on my computer. And then like, you know, after practice was over for the day and everybody, you know, 
there was nobody else that I could like eavesdrop in on or, you know, pester or you know, whatever like that for the day. I'd go home and I'd just like practice learning how to code for like two, three hours. Um, you know, so then when it got to be June and Tom Black, he was, he was like the chief substitute teacher at that time, you know, so he was a volunteer coach, but, um, he actually, you know, like he actually was a coach, you know, he wasn't like a ball shagger like me. Um, and, uh, you know, you go, you go on these tournaments at that time it was called grand prix, you know, now it's nation's league and, uh, you have your travel roster, but then you have some players that are staying home to train, you, you know, cause they're to make the next roster, especially in the Olympic year. You know, you're only, you might travel with 12, but you know, there's a few other players that like really have a shot. So they want to get some good training. So he's doing that. And they're like talking in the office, like, Oh, you know, we, we need to get this person. Oh, the USC data volley person can come down for a day. And the UCLA person can come down for a day or whatever like that. And I was just like, I can do data volley, you know, I, you know, and uh, I kind of almost couldn't, but I could like, I, at that point, cause I had only even heard of it in like a month before, but uh, I was practicing it enough and, you know, I could do it well enough that uh, I could do it during practice and then like run up, upload it, kind of sync it up. And then like, while everybody was eating lunch in the 45 minutes or whatever, before anybody was going to come watch video, I could like correct all my mistakes and then it would be like good for everybody to get back. <laughs> uh, and then like, so that's, I mean, just, it was all like by accident. Like it was, it was like, I never had like any kind of plan to be on the staff until like after the Olympics and then Karch was named the head coach. And then I just said to him, I was like, okay, hey, you have this like technical coordinator position and I kind of lines up like this like weird amalgamation of everything that I've done in my life. So I was like, no, that I don't have this experience, but hey, here's all my ideas and all that. And eventually led to me being on staff full time, but it was completely by accident. Wow. Wow. That is, that is amazing. Quite the journey. And just, uh, I am curious, you're, you're surrounded by all these coaches, but anyone who's ever listened to either your podcast or a guest on other ones, you also have creative and unique ideas. So I'm curious, did, was there a moment or were you always just kind of fighting this battle of maybe not copying what other coaches are doing and say, oh, that's a great drill that uh, Karch just ran. I'm just going to do that with my team versus when did you feel like you were developing your own principles and, and finding time to apply them and your philosophy and things like that versus just saying, oh, Hugh used to run this drill. So now I'm going to run this drill and I'll be a good coach like Hugh. Like, you know, that battle that sometimes young coaches just think that I just need to know the drills other coaches are doing and then I'll be like them. Like, when did you find your own identity and philosophy and all that stuff? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm still finding it, I think. Um, yeah, I guess there's always that tension there because I really like to understand like methodologies and systems and uh, I really, I really like that. But then I like, I just really like can't help, but uh, I don't know, reinventing my own from scratch too. Like, <laughs> so, uh, which, uh, you know, sometimes just waste a lot of time because, you know, I'm like, all right, well, I see how Carl wants to do it, but like, I need to like rethink this all from scratch and then like work through everything on my own. And like, comes out with like exactly what Carl said anyway. But like, I just, <laughs> I guess I'm just stubborn in, in that, in that sense. I just like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess, you know, again, I think you said, you said something like, uh, oh, you had the confidence or the courage to speak up against Carl. And really, I was just kind of like, you know, stubborn jackass and, uh, I don't know. I think I've just kind of always been that way. Probably my parents would probably tell you, I, hopefully not in a bad way, especially hopefully as I've matured, you know, but I, I, just, I like to, I just always like to understand things on my own. So I don't know. And that's, that's definitely also something that I learned um, when I had the chance to work with Marv Dunphy, 
you know, and he just kind of said like, Hey, you can't be a mini Carl. You can't be a mini Mark. You can't be a mini Tom, but you know, there are all these great coaches. You, you still have to be yourself because otherwise you're being a little phony. But I, I think it's definitely okay to like, I don't know. I like to cook. And if you've never made a particular dish before, it's probably good to follow the recipe, but you know, I, I don't think a master chef is like pulling out their recipe card when they're making it like, cause they really understand the principles. So like, that's a lot of times like, so I, I like to cook and I, you know, a couple books that I like to read are more about like the understanding like, okay. So like, what's the difference between like braising and boiling and roasting and like, what are the purposes of all of them? And then, okay, you can pick the right one. But then it's like, if there's a dish that I've never made before, so I'm going to like follow the recipe at least the first couple of times before I start like, to understand like, okay, well, what would be the difference between, you know, substituting this ingredient with another ingredient? Like would I, would I like that change or not? So that's kind of how I view. I've never, like when I was 22, I didn't think about it that way, but that's kind of what I was doing because, you know, I would, I would go and see, okay, here's like how they run the drill. And then I would run the drill their way, like exactly how I saw it run or whatever, structure the practice, whatever it was like that. And I would beat it. And then I would kind of go home and think about like, okay, well, like, why, why would it be three ball entries instead of two entries or four entries? And like, which would be better? Like, do I want to take more time? Do I want to take less time? Well, if I take out one next ball, then we get more serves, but pace is a little slower. Is that good or bad? So that's kind of how I always, that's how I still approach it. Like, you know, I, like okay, right now, there was the American NCAA championships that just finished up. We're going down to Gulf Shores with the NCAA beach championships, uh, working with the Loyola Marymount beach team. Uh, so I'm excited to help them out while I'm down there, but also like see all the teams and same thing. Like, okay, what, what did university of Kentucky do this year with their offense, with their defense when they won national championship, like what they do, all these things. And, and then try to like back out the bigger principles for that. Like try to go kind of small and big with it. Nice. Nice. And then just to dive into your, your principles or, or methods with stats, uh, I'm curious how many data points do you like to have before you trust a stat or, or when do you find that a volleyball stat will stabilize? Like with you being like, you mentioned baseball is like pretty data driven. Like I, I understand that ERA maybe doesn't have a right off the start of the season. That's not an accurate stat. You need a certain amount of innings pitch before you can trust that one. Right. Is there anything in volleyball that you prefer or that you've proven that like there's a stabilization point or a point where it's, it's enough data that you can say, Hey, this is evidence-based and we're going to make a decision off of it. Yeah. So it's, it's always, it's like relative to the, when you look at stats, like stats are just observation with a really good memory. So I think it's always like what I, what I want to remember. And so that's like what a statistic is. It just, it just is what happened. And then you have a certain label on it that kind of puts the context on it. And what we're really, for most of us, what we're really interested in as coaches is like, is the predictive power. So if you're like, if you're a journalist and you're writing up the story about the match, then you might just say, okay, hey, this person had this amount of kills or whatever like that, because that's just like a description of what happened. But as coaches, like, we really only care about a stat like hitting percentage because it's repeatable. Like, players that had a high percent hitting percentage tend to continue to have high hitting percentages. And then it's also uh, predictive. Like, so if you have a higher hitting efficiency than the other team, you usually win. So it's like, that's what we're really interested in. Um, and then, so... Then the, the quantity, like the context of our observations, like really matters because, okay, you had a, a great hitting efficiency, but you did it against 13 year olds. 
So I'm pretty sure it's not going to translate to, you know, the FIVB because just like it's, it's not a representative sample. Then only, so there's like no amount of data of you hitting against 13 year olds that, that would be relevant. And then, um, so say it's like, okay, Canada's going to play the United States. And um, I don't know, Canada just played the United States last week with the same lineup in, in three matches. I'd be like, uh, those three matches are going to be like really pretty predictable what's about to happen now because the context is so similar. Same lineup, same players, same team, same matchups. Yeah, probably probably pretty predictive. But like, if so it's like the, the more different, the less representative your sample, the less, the less predictive value it has. You know what I mean? So 50 passes from last week hold a lot more weight to me than 50 passes from four years ago. So... 50 passes from last week is, I don't know, not a, not a bad, not a bad sample size of, of assuming it's teams with similar abilities, similar context that you're about to play. Yeah. I'm going to be confident making some, you know, making some predictions from, from just 50 passes. If it was last week and like really similar teams, really similar context. And and then the further out of that, further out of that you go, you know, the more the more data you need, or or the data itself even becomes irrelevant. So that's where it's like the thin slicing, thick slicing kind of occurs. Is uh, you have a, enough data, then you can trust the data. But then, if you really don't have good representative data, you don't have enough of it. You're better off just you're almost just better off throwing it out completely. But that was that was kind of that was actually one of my important roles with, with Team USA was knowing uh, what the data could contribute and, and what it meant and, and how, how we should make decisions off that. But then equally important was knowing to be able to say like, okay, here's the, here's some of the statistics from, from this or this or that, and just throw all that out because it's not, it's not going to be as predictive as your intuition because of all these various factors that I just mentioned. Amazing. Amazing. And our, and our listeners have heard me told this story before where Nate Go came to Canada and he helped uh, Lionel, like our our uh, technical director with the men's indoor team, run a presentation on data volley and some other things. But he mentioned when he's giving information to players, he wants the stats to tell a story. And the example he gave was when USA played Canada, okay, Gavin Smith was our guy. So if Gavin Smith is in the front row, this is our blocking scheme. This is where our six-pack guy is going to stand. Like he didn't want to talk about distributions or shot charts or anything. It was kind of like, who's the guy and what's our action to do that? And I'm curious with your roles, both as the data volley guy, but also as the coach, how are you presenting information? So like you said, like there's predicted power and it goes to memory. Like, do you want your athletes thinking about numbers? Are you thinking about action or is there a way to do both? Like, how do you present this? So there's action behind all this research you're doing. Yeah, that's a million dollar question. So I, th- I think you I think you know the answer to that question. Yeah, you don't want people thinking about numbers and and all that. Hey, look, there's a reason why I was a good Division three player, and not a lot of math majors playing in the Olympics. This is the nature of it. It's just brain tight, you know. Like, not saying that you can't do it if you are, and that nobody in the Olympics is smart, but it's just like you're playing in the Olympics and you're really playing at that high level. You're, you're, you're using a different part of your brain when you play than you are the logical analytical. So I want players to be as like unanalytical, unlogical as possible. Like I really just want to be intuitive. So I think there's a few things there. Um, you, you know, you, you use the scouting example, but you know, another, another example you know, it might, it might be something like, 
um, you know, you have a, you're looking at your serving, you know, so, so in USA, for example, in 2014, we had a few players hitting jump spins and, uh, basically, I mean, and again, this is where narrative comes into it a little bit. So 2014, we're playing what was then Grand Prix. Now it would be called Nations League. And, uh, we got seventh, like we didn't qualify for the, the final six round. And for like, for USA, that's, I mean, that's just crushing. Like to not even qualify for the Grand Prix finals. It's, I mean, that's just like, you got to start looking for a new job almost as coaches. It's like really downtime, like really kind of defeating. And if you look at it, okay, out of the 12 teams, we were the least effective serving team, you know, and the way that might measure that, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. But we were the least effective serving team. And, um, some of our spin servers were just not very effective. It's not, I mean, not that they were abysmal, et cetera, et cetera, but it's just, if you look down the board, we're just, we're not an effective serving team. And these are some changes that we had been thinking about making. And uh, quite a few of those players were, had also been float servers, right? So it's like, you have some information on how to do it. And uh, the data there was just able to kind of say like, what, what was the needed change? Because something like serving is, that is something where you're talking about small differences over a lot of serves. You know, I mean, uh, spin serving, uh, women's volleyball kind of decline. And I'm not saying that there can be no spin servers in women's volleyball. It can be effectively, certainly there are. But you want to let the effectiveness speak for it. So you want to say, like, if I have this intuition about a decision that we want to make with the change. So I'm really kind of talking about the coaching staff, not the players just yet. But it's like, we're trying to figure out this choice to make and then we have to know like wh- like where is the reality that, that we're basing from so that, that's kind of what it was like because we knew it would be a pretty significant change to, to tell a player okay hey, you've been spin serving and now you have to change it because you're kind of telling them like hey you suck you need to totally change your serve <laughs> you know which is I mean it's, it's not what you're telling them but like that's what a player is going to hear a lot of times like it's you know any significant change like that like it can be threaten your ego and stuff like that. So we knew it would be like a really significant change. I would need a lot of coaching capital. So with that, it was like, is it, is it that necessary? And it's like, okay, the numbers show you like, yeah, it is like for sure. hundred percent it was. So I think that gave the coaching staff. Okay. We, it shows us how necessary this change is to give the energy where then cards could like really lay it out to the players. And he's not using it as a statistical. I mean, maybe there's a little statute to say like, that we were the least effective serving team. And because of that, we need to make a change. And then all the talk about what the change was going to be, that's, I mean, there's there's no statistics there, but just what that really did was that kind of lends the clarity. And, you know, you do a lot of, <laughs> you know, Nate and I do joke about this. It's like scouting or your statistical analysis. It's like you do like a hundred page statistical analysis to say like, the correct sentence to one, you know what I mean? It's like 30 hours of research for like one sentence, but like that's it. This is the next sentence. And then more importantly, the coaching staff can say with conviction and clarity. So then the player just has to think about that one sentence, but it's like, you know, it's the right sentence. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what a lot of it is. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller started an amazing golf brand called club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 
10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm curious, have you found a way either through coaching or through your own research? Is there a science or an art to coaching about front loading this information? Like, let's say you use the example of the serving and maybe you needed to go back on the practice gym and do that. But is there a way for club coaches or maybe pro beach coaches? Like, is there a way of saying, like, we don't have a two ball now, but I don't want to be in a situation where I scout our opponent and a two ball would expose them, but we just don't have it in the bank, right? Like, have you found any methods about understanding your level and progressing to, you know, we don't have it right now, but we're going to need it. Like, is there... I, I, I'm leaning towards maybe it's more the art of coaching than the science of it, but I'm curious what your experience is about, you know, loading stuff that you're going to need in a scattering port and you're going to execute it when the time comes. You know, that's the thing about coaching is like when you say the word coach, there's like seven different roles within a coach. So for example, like you're talking about, like there's, there's evaluator. Hey, who's going to start? Who's going to make the team? Who's going to be in the starting lineups? There's trainer. Like, here's how you do these skills. There's like counselor, you know, you're working through those things. There's tactician. Okay. What are we going to set the left side or the right side? You know, where are people going to stand on the court? You know, there's, there's strategists, you know, there's, Hey, this team is going to be thinking that way. So we're going to think this way. Uh, you know, there's program manager, you know, there's all of these, all of these different roles. And sometimes they conflict because what you're talking about right now is, is the, the, the statistics show you what you are right now. Part of our coach, job as coaches is to show you what you could be. So uh, you can definitely, you can definitely risk over indexing on, on some of that stuff. Um, you know, if you're coaching 10 year olds, the, the statistical analysis will tell you the best thing to do is bump the first ball back, right, right back over the net. Uh, you know, that, hey, that's the statistically best play. But like, the thing is like, that's the statistically best play now. In like one month, that won't even be the best play because, you, you know, hey, a 10-year-old, you're literally like 2% older by halfway through the season. <laughs> you know, so it's like, there, there can be a lot of change, you know, and the younger you are, the, the obviously, you know, the, or the less experienced you are like in, in certain ways or or even if you're, coming into your first year in, in university ball or, or your first year out of university into the pro circuit. Like this is your first time being exposed to that level or that training stimulus, et cetera. So there's like huge opportunities for growth. So that's like a real part of the, the strategy is I would say to that is, and, and I, and I kind of, I think one of the things that I think you're getting out there is it's actually been like, again, this huge, like accidental forest go uh, thing that I've been blessed with is like, I feel like, I feel like I have one of the, the been fortunate enough to have some of the broadest coaching experiences. Like in a given year, I feel like, okay, I get to interact with Olympic players. I get to interact with players, American players, interact with European or Asian players. I get to 
Iraqi players indoor on the beach, 12 year olds, 16 year olds, Olympians, you know, and it's just like all these different things. And what's really given me kind of an appreciation for is like the slope or the ladder of volleyball. So I'm like really, I'm like really interested in things where I can really like see the slope or kind of see that, like the differences between levels and the transitions between them. And it, I mean, it's startling how many uh, problems in volleyball are like, uh, you know, the same at 13 as they are at 18 as they are at 28. You know, it's just a matter of degree. Like it just gets harder and harder and like kind of have these funnels that not everybody's able to, to pass through and make that next step. So just as you're kind of saying, it's like um, how I think about it is like, I always want to kind of be aware of like, for example, just with that, with a player, Hey, like, how did you get here instead of like the players that you were playing against? Cause presumably if you're on this team, you're good enough that like we took you instead of a bunch of other players, right? Even just like in high school, not everybody moves up from JV to varsity. Like players get cut when they try out for the varsity team. So if you're on this team, like, why are you, why are you on this team and not those other kids as a coach? It's like, okay. So like, that's some of the strength that this player is bringing. And you can like, you can express that statistically like, okay, varsity, everybody can only get their server order six out of 10 times. And, and these, these varsity players can get it over eight times out of 10. And, and then now like the players that are going to go on to college, it's like, they can get it over and they also can hit a certain amount of speed or this or that. So, so it's like, what, what separated this player from the, the level below, but then like, if I look at the level above, what is this player lacking? So that could be technically, like from a mechanical perspective, like what are their limiting mechanics, you know, like that, that prevent them from expressing power and, and moving quickly and accurately, et cetera, et cetera. And then like tactically, you know, if our team, if we compare our team to the national champion at this level or the national championship, a level up, like what's the difference in tactics and, and stuff like that. So I want to have this like, almost, that's where actually like the data volume and the scouting, it's like such a blessing to have, it's been such a blessing to not have been some great player that like, I feel like if I was some great player, maybe I could have walked on to coaching staffs and been like, Oh yeah, here, here's how you do it. Just play how I play. That's all I got to know. But because I wasn't any kind of great player, just this guy from Delaware, like I was like, okay, well I need to study what the best passers do. And that's or what the best servers do or whatever like that. So that's where I like the video study comes in handy. And then when I when you feel you almost kind of create this sort of like template. So if you watch like 20 of the best passers pass, there's lots of differences, but there's like this 80 to 90% core similarity. And I'm like, okay, that's just like I just kind of like hold that template in my mind. And I compare it to everybody who's not as good. Like, okay, where forget about like the 20% that's sort of different and unique and personal spin. I don't care about that. But like, what do you not have that the top player has? Like, is it a matter of um, a category? Like, do you do things kind of um, just different in kind or is it just a matter of degree? Like you're kind of doing everything they do. You just, you're not quite as fast or powerful or consistent. Okay. You're kind of on the right track, but are you just doing some things that are like pretty different? Okay. Then we need to change it. This is this is awesome, and it's great to hear your breakdown of what a coach is and how many roles there are. But uh, I'm curious when you say you do your own studies, or what I've read you when you do your own studies, 
I know data volley or volumetrics helps like cut the video and that's going to save some time. But when you get into really specific stuff about like, I think you mentioned on your podcast, like digging balls to your right or whatever, are you just, uh, I, I think the big term right now with the NFL draft is they want guys who are grinding tape, like they're watching tape so much, but are you just taking pen and paper and you're looking at your own studies? Like, are you actually tagging specific stuff? Like when you go down the rabbit hole of, of a custom study that you've done in the past, are you using magical tools or is it something that every coach has access to and you're just putting in more time than everybody else? And it's honestly pen and paper and observation and, and you're looking for like you said common things that maybe some top players are doing so this is an audio podcast but here's my beach volleyball notebook that i've been watching so here this is all handwritten observations here from this season you know and you can just see we just got a whole bunch of grid lines and tally marks and my own you know not you know the tools that are kind of out there they're great. And, uh, but, and I'll tell you that, again, this is, I feel like this is like kind of the dumbest thing ever, but, uh, this, this also was a line that from the four hour work week that like, uh, really struck me. And I think it's a quote from Bill Gates. And it was, uh, the quote is something to the effect of automation makes a good process great and a bad process terrible. So I, I started studying the game with pencil and paper. Like I said, I would watch my own video and form, just time, write down a timestamp. And I was doing the statistics with a pencil and paper. I didn't know that there were. It's one of these things where it's like so stupid. Like I never even really bothered to look actually when I was coaching club. I mean, it's one of these things that's like, once I discovered data volley, I was like, oh, of course something like this exists. But I like, I just kind of like assumed it didn't. I had never saw it. Yeah, there was like, you know, whenever your iPad or, I mean, that was real early days of iPad, but there was, you know, there was like little computer things that people in club volleyball were using, but I was like, eh, they're all just only recording like kills. And, uh, you know, I, I want to kind of tailor it to me. And I, I, I still think that to this day, like I, I like to write something out. The funny thing is kind of a funny thing. Cause I was like, okay, I was like the technical coordinator at USA. I think people like think I'm a technology guy. I'm kind of like a technology idiot. Like I'm not a technology <laughs> idiot, but like, I'm not really like a tech, super like actually like tech savvy person. Like so my wife is like way more than me. Um, but it's, it's a lot of times it's like, I, I, I like to write the process out on pencil and paper. Um, and like, what am I looking for? What am I trying to figure out? Like, how can I write it out and visualize it in front of me? And then if you have a tool that can automate it and make it faster, that's great. And if you don't, which like right to beach volleyball, like there's just like not good tools. So I just have this like pencil and paper graph chart thing going on that takes a little time, but I don't know, not that, well, I don't know. I guess it's relative. I guess it takes a lot of time, but I have time. Um, you know, so, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where it's at, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I guess the short answer is a lot, a lot of time relative you know you know relative but um i don't think it's about the tool i think that's probably a really kind if i could maybe kind of condense the answer i think the really common thing is like is the the temptation to look for a tool when um a lot of times it's almost like the other way you want to kind of remove you want to remove stuff more than you add stuff and you only want to add stuff when you're like really clear about what you want to add i think 
Awesome. Yeah, this this is great. And I had one other question in my notes here just about Tom Black when we had him on the show. And I think growth mindset has hit sport in a big way. And I think a lot of people are applying it. And he said in his gym, like a growth mindset would be, we're going to try some really difficult stuff. And maybe right now you're a three out of 10 at executing the skill. And maybe maybe in a couple of weeks, you'll be a four and you're not very good at it right now, but we're going to keep climbing. But one thing that I thought was interesting is in his opinion, you can't measure transfer, which I, I totally agree with. But again, with you being a stats and a data guy, are you using stats to somehow measure improvement? Or are you on the same page of him that there's like, there's not a formula that says if you do, I don't know, 12 jump serves every other day for 16 weeks, you're going to be an expert spin server already, like magic formula, right? But uh, I'm curious, are you using stats in practice to help the athlete feel like they are getting better? Or is there a way to measure it a little bit? Or is it just is honestly not accurate to figure out an athlete transfer of skill? Yeah, for sure. I think... I think for sure there's 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 no magic formula there because by the time you measure it, the athlete's in a different place. It's, and when I say that, that doesn't mean that there's there's like a lot of good roles for sports science. So this would be the motor learning, the sports science type people. They they would know this a lot better than me. So a lot of times I just listen to a lot of those podcasts and I'm just trying to kind of follow along with, with the research they're doing. But like they're necessarily doing a lot of research that's so, you know, like in weightlifting or weight loss or, or uh, aerobic fitness, I mean, there's physiological things that people understand, right? So it's like, okay, you know, here's training guidelines for improving VO2 max or or cardiac capacity or muscle hypertrophy, et cetera. You know, there, there's research on that and uh, it's, it's far from 100% settled, but, you know, okay, there's, there's some idea. You know, if you're trying to... Uh, add a max amount of muscle for a bodybuilder, you know, you're not going to do nothing but 10 pound dumbbell curls. Okay. So clearly there's a little bit of understanding about how to do that kind of stuff. And, and so there is some of that. I can't say I've contributed to this in terms of transfer and stuff like that. You know, there's people there's just way, you know, there's way, there's way better sports scientists than me that are kind of studying some of these things about transfer. But what also made me think about is I think a lot of coaches don't always take this step so here's one of the most valuable things that you can do in practice. It's just record your number of reps. And I think a lot of coaches don't do. I'm always, so, I, so I do coaching clinics and, and people ask me this and uh, surprising. So it's like, hey, I'm trying to get this serve. You know, I'll work on this passing. Hey, how many balls is your player passing? Like how many in that drill? Like how many balls would you expect to pass? Oh, I have no idea. I never thought about that. So that's like something that I'm always like writing down. Um, how long drills to, so, you know, you write up your whiteboard or it's just your notebook or whatever like that, that you have practice on. So always like try to write in the margin real quick. Like what time we actually started that drill. Cause uh, we were planning on starting it at eight, 10, you know, 10 minutes of practice. And we actually started at eight, 12, you know, or toddle something down. And then, okay. When we completed it. So I know that like, okay, that drill, like with those constraints or that number of balls, et cetera, number of rallies took this amount of time. There's a lot of drill, like, okay, when you do that over time, there's a lot of stuff that you know, like, okay, yeah, this serve bounce bounce, that takes about a minute. So if we're going to do eight waves to those, it takes about eight minutes. And if we're going to do it for all six rotations, bam, that's about 50 minutes to do that whole drill, whatever it is like that. Like you really get like a pretty good sense for it. Like, so there's a lot of stuff that you can like predict pretty well, like in terms of your time parameters. And it's also worth like really thinking about the skill parameters. So that's like something that I would always check like with the national team, like, Okay, like we, we make these like coach, like that was, I think, and, and again, like this is not 
complicated statistics. Like, I think that's always like the temptation is like, oh, there must be like some wizardry or like some secret formula. Like, there's a couple of things that were like maybe advanced, some advanced, but that's like 10% of it. I mean, a lot of my, my role was like, okay, hey, here's our training priorities, these three training priorities. And one of them is to get this player better at her transition hitting. And uh, in that drill, she got four reps. And in this drill, she got 11 reps. And this drill, she got seven reps. You know, so that was 20. She got 22 of those chances. Is that good or bad? I don't know. That's sort of up to you and, and how much time you have and resources and how much load the player can tolerate that particular skill, et cetera, like that. But I think like a lot of coaches just count reps. That would be a good start. Like before you know how much something is going to transfer, you would, you'd want an idea of just like the volume. So I think that's something that, that a lot of coaches can do. And, and if you're, um, you know, club coach or whatever like that, I mean, that, that's pretty basic. Like, you know, you can just mark how many times a player's pass or serve in this type of drill. And especially if you can hone it in on one player, because when you're watching a practice, hopefully there's volleyballs going all the time. So it's like, okay, there's always something going on, but sometimes it could be informative to just uh, like follow one player for an extended period of time. Like, okay, so in this 10 minute section, like what, the, what does this one player actually do? That's where video can be valuable. Anybody who's like a college recruiter <laughs> can testify this. If, if you know, if players send practice video, if you're trying to watch practice video, it's like, wow, this player goes a long time between getting to exhibit the skill that we're trying to figure out if she has, <laughs> you know? So that's something to just kind of keep in mind. Nice. So are you saying in your yearly training plan, like you can look back over training block and say, oh, we, we really wanted to get good at serve receiving in the seam. And you can say, hey, my club team, we practice two times a week and we got 365 reps at that. Like you can actually measure if a training block is taking or if you're getting better at the thing you, you kind of laid out. Be atypical in a club environment if I was able to be that accurate, just because you have limited amount of like data collection. But um you know, I could take a practice, you know, hey, I have my notebook that has all my practice plans. So I, I know roughly what we did and, uh, you know, I cross out somebody's name if they're there and I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like I would need to look at the training plans, do a little back in the envelope uh, because, you know, you have a certain drill, you measure that drill one, one or two times if it's something that has some predictability and then you have an idea about, okay, in this drill, most of the players are going to get on the order of 10 service receptions. Like they might get seven, they might get 14, but they're probably not only going to get two passes and they're probably not going to pass 30 balls. So I have a kind of an idea of about how many times. Nice. And that's for, for a club coach. That's probably more feasible. And the main thing there is just not to assume, for example, Oh, you were working on passing. My libero has got to get better at passing. And just not to assume that just because you did something for 10 minutes that she actually got the opportunity to pass. Or maybe he well, he only rece received two balls. Like I use actually example of libero serve receiving because that's an example where it's possible to like do some drills and like they get very little reps. Actually, if your servers are doing a good job, <laughs> sometimes that happens. So like, for example, that was something that we saw at TVSA. And this is not, again, this is not like some revelation, but like, hey, we, you know, we looked at this week of practice and it's like, you know, that's where you're just looking at the stats, but you're not looking at passing efficiency. You're just looking at number of reps. And it's like, oh, our libero only passed 18 balls in six on six this week of practice. So good job on our servers. We're not serving our liberos, but okay, we got to design this drill format. We call it Blitz the Bro, where it's like, 
in order to 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 win or for this round, you have to serve the libero the whole time. You have to serve the zone that she was passing, et cetera, et cetera, because we still kind of you know work her, et cetera, et cetera. So it's more just like some of the stuff if you can be specific about it, but it's like if you have an assumption about the amount of work that the player is getting, especially if it's an important skill. And also, like I would say, like sometimes you can attune to something like, all right, just for example, I'm working a little bit helping out with Cat's club program a little bit right now. Okay, here's this also hit her on this one team. And like a lot of players do, okay, she's favoring, likes to step with her right foot every time she passes. Like that's not uncommon for a lot of young players. But when the ball's on your left, that becomes a problem because you kind of step with your right. You get a little crossed over as you pass. Like, that is still a good passer. You know, you're still fine. But, like, there's some particular balls it's not ideal for. So it's like, okay, well, you want to work on – and you, you go over and say to a player, okay, hey, yeah, instead of taking that right step, take a little left step instead, you know, move like this. You know, whatever the normal coaching point is you get. And then it's worth, like, watching how many opportunities to practice that move did that player actually get. Because, wow, now I've kept that in my mind. We're a half hour to practice, and it's zero opportunities. There haven't been any balls that have been served so that she would have had to make that move. You, you know, something like that. So just, yeah, count reps. <laughs> That's one of the most, probably the most basic importance step that we can get, whether you do it, like, formally by, like, actually counting the specific numbers or at least somewhat informally since you at least have a ballpark so that you don't think, oh, I thought she was going to get 30 passing reps. And she's only gotten two. Like, you don't want to be that far off. Nice, nice. And just to ask about one more layer of coaching, because I'm glad the, the the way you laid it out like that. When I reached out to Autumn Bailey with Team Canada, because you were part of that program, uh, she mentioned you you really fired up the team and inspired them during a post-practice speech. So you guys are in the huddle, and she mentioned you, you gave this speech about you know what it's like to go to the Olympics and that Canada can do it and all the work they were doing and and she mentioned it just it, it breathed life into the dream and it kind of made it like real and like if you believe they could do it like they they knew they could accomplish it so I'm, I'm curious do you remember that moment and is this something you do with a lot of your teams that you're gonna you're gonna tell the story you're gonna fire them up you're gonna let them really know that you believe in the goal and what you guys are working towards well it was certainly well certainly I want to uh I would hope to try to inspire in whatever way I can any player that I work with. And um, hopefully it's always, I, I do, I, I for sure remember that, that particular practice. I was, that was just kind of an emotional uh, practice. And I was actually like, just was just really angry at the team actually during the practice. And I just was, yeah, I was really working on a lot during practice. And, uh, and I was mad at them because I was, I was mad because, you have these athletes who have worked so hard and they, they have worked so hard and they have, I, I don't know what it's like to be an Olympic athlete, but I've at least sort of observed, you know, and, and been around that. I know what sacrifices you make, you know, when you're 14, 15, 16, you know, you're, you're, you're doing all this extra practice while your friends are doing this. And when you're in university, you're doing all this while your, while your friends are doing this. And, and now you're, you're post university and, and you're doing all this. And it's, it's like this mental thing that you're putting yourself through. So I knew how hard they were working. And, but there was just, they were, I felt like they were holding back a little bit or, and all this. And it just, I just <laughs> was saying to them, like, you all work too hard to hold yourself back. And, and then I, then I just said a little bit about like how I believe that I could, could see 
players here that will be playing in the Olympics. I, I, I believe that. I look, I see, look around the circle, and I, I see faces that I think that will get to walk in opening ceremonies with, with their flag. And, like, I really, really do not ever want to be the coach that is like, well, back when I did it, this is what I got to do. Because, first of all, like, to, to most players, you know, for the scheme of the levels that I've been fortunate to go to, what I've accomplished isn't crap. <laughs> so, for, certainly as a player, and then, hey, my, whatever – but I just wanted to share like uh, what, what a special, what a special feeling of pride that I knew that they would feel like getting to walk into opening ceremonies um, behind your country's flag. And that I felt that for all the sacrifice that they had so far done, you know, that they, they deserve to just put a little bit more into it and, and, and get over kind of that, that next just, just that one next level that hey, Team Canada Women's Volleyball is trying to get there. They, they're, they're right on the cusp, you know, for sure. They're right on the cusp of it. And uh, <laughs> sometimes it just, uh, I guess it's like the parent, you know what I mean? You, you know, if you don't do this, I know that you're going to regret it. And sometimes that's the job of the coach is just to, to, to yeah, believe in what somebody could be before they can be- totally believe it themselves. And when you're a part of a high level program like this, like switching from the USA and joining Tom's staff with team Canada, like I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, Canada, we're rebuilding and we've got a good thing going. And I think the team is moving in a good direction, but it's not at the level of USA volleyball. So were you ever conflicted with the idea of maybe using what you did with the USA as you know, this, this credibility that you could bring to the table or comparing it saying like they're a top team in the world and we do this system or we do these tactics. Like, are you going in with a fresh slate and you're treating like team Canada and this is what we're going to do separately? Or is there a, ever a temptation to say USA volleyball does this and, and we're going to add that to our style right now? Um, I would say pretty careful to almost do the opposite. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the best things about doing, you know, camps and, so, you know, I, I do all this kind of stuff pretty regularly. Um, it's, you know, Carl, Carl once said in the very first Goldman Square coaching clinic, like real early in it, he, he shared, Carl shared a little bit of, you know, when he first started the BYU men's program, you know, they were terrible. They went two and 27. They gradually improved. They won national championship, but like they started two and 27. And he said, I hope all of you have a two and 27 season because you will be really motivated not to have another one. <laughs> and, uh, my my sort of corollary or add on to that is like everybody should coach time to take time coaching players who aren't very good at volleyball and who don't really want to be very good at volleyball. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like go run some camps or, or go do some stuff where you're working with like eh, moderately motivated, moderate, moderately to mediocre athletic 15 year olds because they just don't care who you are what you've done you know there's a lot of camps that i do that i can tell like the kids are really fired up you know the coaches have gotten fired up and they're like oh this guy you know he's coaching the olympics oh that's so cool and there's plenty of camps that i can tell like these kids could not care less they're only showing up at camp because they think that will help them make the varsity team and then they can get to wear the jersey you know and and have a varsity you know whatever something like that and they just could not care less like they, they don't even, they're not even aware that volleyball is in the Olympics or whatever. <laughs> they just couldn't care less. And, uh, 
you know what? Those players still deserve to be coached. Like just because not everybody, and they can still have a good experience. You know, I played high school football. I was never going to play in the NFL or even play college. I was pretty mediocre high school football player, you know, but I still can have a positive experience with that. So I've always tried to meet players where, where they're at. And I, I just always just want players, whatever level they're at to get whatever they want out of the season. For some people, it's just, it's personal growth. For some people, it's a very specific performance achievement. And I will say coaches are surprised that those exist, whether players are 13 or 28. And there are professional volleyball players that I have played with and coached who frankly are not super motivated to achieve great things in their professional volleyball career. They love playing volleyball. They like the lifestyle of volleyball. They like what it means for them personally. They just happen to be really good at it. And there's like 13 year olds who like go home crying after every match that they lose because they want to win so badly. And like, I don't really judge like either one. I just like, it's not, I don't really think it's like on me to, especially in the coaching role and a lot of the coaching roles that I've had, which is not like leader of the program. So like, you know, the, the Canada to, to draw in the Canada, like they have a Canada Olympic volleyball has like a pretty specific mission. So like everybody, everybody's pretty, pretty aligned on that. Um, but for me, so for me as like a, an assistant coming into that, it's not really my job to like judge the alignment of the program or, or what the players are there for. Like that's, that's kind of head coaches and, and even on Olympic committee, there's people besides the head coach who kind of impact all of that. My job is just to kind of help everybody be the best that they can be. Um, and I'll say like, for example, when, when with USA, I get to be a part of uh, USA gold medal uh, world championship winning team. So we won the world championship in 2014, really big accomplishment. First time USA women had ever done that. And uh, one thing that I was struck by, like how similar it felt to, I could remember my first head coaching year, our 15 and under club team that I coached won the regional championship. And it was like a huge accomplishment for these girls. They won the region and, and qualified for the nationals and, and beat a team that oh, we didn't think that we could beat or whatever like that. I was just like struck by how similar those two experiences were. Like, and then the professional stuff, like the world championship, that's got like more, like the degree of it, it's just more, like all of the emotions that you felt, 15, all the things you had to go through to win a 1500 regional championship, et cetera. It's all the same stuff. It, it's just more because it took, it didn't take one season, it took multiple seasons and this, okay, all, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a little more behind it, but it's like very similar. So, I really just always try to, I don't know, just, just take each player for where they're at. And, um, and I don't know, I think that's something that always, I think that's something that did help me relate to some really great players and higher level athletes, because I, I would, I joined the team USA staff. Um, I was 25. And uh, I didn't division one volleyball, much less professional volleyball, much less Olympic volleyball. So I'm helping coach these players in a way, uh, you know, and it's like, what am I going to tell them to come in there and do it my way? They're like, your way sucks. <laughs> but so I just want to learn about that player. Okay. Here's where I see you by observing you and here's where you're at. And here's what I see when you play the best. And here's what I see when you're, when you're not at your best. And then also, like, here's some supplemental things, like if I look at World Class. So when you say, like, hey, would you compare it to Team USA? 
I try not to to do that as much with not to do that as much with Canada because that kind of dragged me into it. If there was anything that I would use for from Team USA, it would just have been from the context of, oh, they are a world class team, so therefore it's relevant to Canadian players trying to make that next step from third in Norseka to first in Norseka. So it's it's the fact that it, I might reference USA. Is is no much more than how I would reference China, how I would reference what I see from Italy or Serbia, the other the other top teams in the world. Uh, so I really didn't want to make that about like, oh, I've been to the mountaintop and just follow me because <laughs> I don't know, maybe some coach, maybe that works for some coaches, but that's it's never been how I've been. Amazing, man. This is this has been great, and I know you're you're a family man, and I kind of promised you an hour, but it, whenever we get a guest on the show that I just can't stop talking to, we go over time a little bit. But uh, just a couple more questions, if you got the time here. But uh, one one quote you said on your podcast I thought was awesome, and I just wanted you to give an example, hopefully for our listeners, and we can convert them to your show. But one one episode I listened to, it was just a great line where you you kind of explained that. In sports, sometimes we overestimate coaches in the short term and we underestimate the power in the long term. And I'm I'm curious through your own experience or maybe something you would do with coaches you work with or mentor. Uh, what are some examples of that? Like, do coaches really need to be thinking long term? And, and even like you said, like over the course of the interview, just working on like soft skills of your coaching athletes who aren't going to be Olympians. But what does volleyball give them or like they still have the right to be coached up and have a good experience? Right. So w- with that being like a, a philosophy you shared on your show, just what does that mean to you? And how did you kind of come across that and kind of instill it in other coaches? It's such a <laughs> such a funny thing, because it's like, what is good coaching? Is it what there's so many ways to measure it? You know, like, is it, do, you, do you meet your performance goals? Uh, do, does the player improve individually and move up to the next level? Do, does your team achieve? You know, and like you said, then there's these, these other factors in life. Do you continue to become a mentor to players? And, and all of it, like, none of those is necessarily better or worse. And that's what makes coaching, like, just, just like really, like teaching. You know, like, it makes it like this really, uh, I, I don't know, kind of complex thing. Um, you know, um, I'm kind of struggling to put it like an exact finger on it just because, um, I don't know. Sometimes even players benefit from being, from bad coaches sometimes in weird ways. Um, you know, like there's, there's lots, I mean, just so many examples I can think of a player who just had a really horrible experience with a, with a coach not horrible. I don't say horrible, but just like, man, I just like couldn't stand that coach. They were, they're just like, they, they annoyed me. They frustrated me. I don't feel like I got better, et cetera. But then the next year with a different coach, whether it's a college program where that coach was replaced or moved on or the player transfers or a national team or whatever it was like that. And then that player has an amazing year under this, this new coach. And a lot of me is like, you know, you probably wouldn't be having such a great year if you didn't hate that other coach, you know, (laughs) like it's almost like, you you know, like, uh, you, uh, you you date a a girl or whatever after she had a horrible boyfriend. She'll she'll probably think that you're the greatest just because that other guy sucked or something like that. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, and, and part of me is like, I've seen that in, for example, again, I always kind of draw up club volleyball because, it's just, uh, you know, 
that's kind of where I grew up in and, and just my parents would do it for so long. So we always talk volleyball when I see it with all that. And uh, I would, sometimes I almost think, and now I have a young daughter. So I kind of think like, I'm always thinking, oh, if she wants to play volleyball, like would I coach her or like, okay, if she plays some other sport, how would I know who's a good coach for her to play for or a good program that will help her in, in all the various ways, you know? And uh, sometimes I, I would talk with my sister who's a coach and so is a coach. We always talk about volleyball and stuff. It's almost like, it's almost bad when players get in too good of a program when they're 12 and 13 or 14, because sometimes it's almost like you almost need to play for a bad coach to know and appreciate a good coach or something like that. But then it's like, well, it's not like you want your kid to play for a bad coach. So this is like the least productive answer I think ever that I'm giving you. But I just think just, man, life is long. (laughs) life is long and there's lots of things that I think to be learned that take a while to sink in. And there's definitely times when, and again, like I I got to learn some of this, I got to see some of this when I was growing up in club volleyball. I think what helped me is there was a long time. Like I really took a slow entry into coaching because I kind of started when I was like 15, you know, but I didn't have like huge coaching responsibilities, just helping my parents out with their coaching and it was a long time before I was a head coach. And I just saw like many times when it's really not uncommon to see, for example, in club volleyball, you are working with a player and like, they're not getting it. You're trying to work on their approach. You know, how many club players are goofy footed or whatever like that. And they're like, not really getting it. And they're still kind of goofy footed and they're doing this and doing that. And then it's like, they go away for the summer and then you see them come back in the fall for high school. And then all of a sudden their approach looks super smooth. And it's like, you know, all of that work that you put in with that player and then they had some time to take off and then they came back to the high school season and then now they were primed for the one thing that that, coach, that new coach was going to say to them. They kind of got it or or vice versa. You, you know, I've, I definitely, <laughs> and, I, and, and then I've been on the receiving end, like I said, of that, you, you know, like, okay, university program where a player kind of had a bad experience and then like she was like super primed to like have a good experience with me or whatever it is like that. Um, you know, and it's just like, just, it's hard to predict those factors. And I think we can probably all relate to, I don't know, maybe experiences, something we learned from our parents that they would say to us when we were teenagers. And it's like, I don't know, it doesn't sink into your 25. <laughs> so I think that's just like something that's really important for me as coaches is just to kind of think about like people will, People will say things, you know, when I was in second grade, I had a science teacher. It was Mr. Menser. Shout out to Mr. Menser. And uh, I still remember how I had really bad handwriting. doesn't everybody when they're in second grade, but I had bad handwriting. And I would never erase properly. And, uh, you know, he would always do this thing. Of course, he's like a second grade teacher. And uh, he, w- he would call them ghosts. Like if you didn't erase fully and then tried to write the new answer, he kind of had the ghost of the other answer. He called him, and he would do the, oh, ghosts scare me. Ooh. And it's like, you know, you're second grade, you thought it was funny. And I, and I will be damned if I still remember that to this day. You know, that was more than 20 years ago. And I still, you know, sometimes I erase something, not completely. You know, I'm like, ah, can't leave a ghost, you know, or like, <laughs> and uh, it just never, I couldn't remember anything else I learned. What, what, you know, what he learned in second grade science, I don't even know. But I, I'll always remember the ghosts. And I'm sure he said it in like the most offhandedly way, like wasn't part of his curriculum or his lesson, 
you know, and I, but I still remember to this day. So I, and it's so funny because like people, and I had, you know, a couple other things like that. And people will say to me, like, cause I write on the whiteboard, I'm like, oh wow, like your handwriting is like so neat. Like, oh, you write it like a, it looks like a computer printed. And I'm like, I used to have the, I have, I have a worse handwriting for a long time. And probably Mr. Menser thought that he didn't help me with my handwriting at all. It just took, I was just a really slow learner. It took me like 12 years to have good handwriting. You know, I didn't have it until I was 25 uh, or something like that. So it's like, that's how I would just think like volleyball coaches. It's just, eh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sometimes the feedback is, uh, is a little delayed. Amazing, man. It's been great to talk to you and learn so much, steal some more ideas, but also just learn about your career. And one thing on our show, we're trying to make a tradition is just to show the the personality in our sport. So everybody's learned that you've been at the highest level, but you also make time for camps and clinics and coaching club. But in our sport, there is a lot of personality and sometimes just funny or odd stuff happens along the way. So I was hoping you could share one more story with us before we let you go, just to give us a quick laugh. I will share one because you've had the great Tom Black on your podcast head, you know, national team coach and all that. And I was with Tom Black in 2012, way back. He was with Loyola Marymount. He had only been there for a few years. It was his first division one job. So he, he's kind of this grinder who moved up on the coaching ranks and he's going with Loyola Marymount. And it was just an awesome season to be involved with. It was my first uh, collegiate experience. So I was, I was his volunteer and I was working with him and all that. And uh, we get to the end of the year and right on the bubble to be able to make the NCAA tournament. And LMU hasn't made it in like a decade. You know, they were terrible. Tom had been turning it around. We're having a good season. We're kind of right in the shouting distance. We're playing this last match against Cal State Northridge. And if we win it, maybe we'll make the NCAA tournament. And if we lose it, for sure we're out. And uh, Cal State Northridge also in a similar spot. So it was a really contentious match. And we're going to five. And Tom, uh, he writes the lineup in wrong. And so, so it's like, we're going to kind of spin the dial to change the rotation for the fifth set, try to put our best outs hand up and four. And he kind of just writes the lineup in wrong. He, he flips the outsides. So he put the kind of second outside who was really like an O2, you know, ball control, not main offensive option in, in there. And he puts the, kind of the big hitter in, in their spot in the kind of theoretically the worst matchup. And, uh, you know, he's he's kind of up there and he's just like as we're starting the game he's just kind of like you know like just thinking like oh, i just totally would and uh we win the fifth set like 15 to 7 we just kill him <laughs> <laughs> and uh after the match the the head coach of northridge who's you know the former olympic great jeff stork you know kind of you know he's a whole thing and, you know he's kind of getting interviewed and he's like man we totally didn't see that lineup change just I have to, I have to hand it to Tom Black. He, he really outcoached me in this last match. <laughs> Tom and are just looking at each other and it's just like, well, sometimes coaching doesn't make sense, but we'll take it. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, after, I guess, more than an hour of talking about the importance of coaching, uh, there's one of the bizarre utilities or, or just there, there, there's some luck involved. So, uh, just we'll all be, we'll all be victims of bad luck, but, but take the good luck when you get it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that one. So it's been great to definitely have you on the show and get to, like I said, steal some ideas and hear some more stories. So anybody wants to hear more of you, you have a great thing going with, with the Volleycast that they can check out. And I think like this show, you're on every platform. So, and you've also made some appearances on Coach Your Brains Out. So definitely just give your name a search because I think what you told us today is 
is definitely not the exception to the rule. Every time I've heard or read in a blog or an article on you, it's just great stuff. So thanks for everything you do for our sport and just how willing you are to share and help coaches, you know, create their own ideas, but also just, you know, borrow yours because you've already put in a lot of the legwork. So thanks so much for joining us tonight and for everything you do for our sport. Uh, Cool. Thanks for having me.